the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We get together like this every weekend, and we get on the air because of Alan Dempsey. Uh, He's the engineer and uh, gets us out there to you. Uh, Andrew Herdliska is our producer. And our first guest is Dr. Brian Fickert. He's in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, uh, looking out over Chattanooga. He's the founder and president of the Chalmers Center at Covenant College. His new book is out. It's called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. Moody put the book out. Uh, Welcome, Brian. How are you doing? It's great to be with you today, Pat. Uh, that title needs a little explanation. Becoming whole, why the opposite of poverty isn't the American dream. Uh, what does that mean? You know, Pat, a number of years ago, actually about a decade ago, we were able to write a book called When Helping Hurts. And so many people have benefited from that book. God blessed that book in ways we could never have imagined. But kind of two things have happened since that time. The first is, uh, so many people come up to us with very specific questions. You know, they're ministering in uh, Nigeria to an unreached people group, and they've got a very, very specific question about how to help the poor in that context. And the, the truth of the matter is, we don't have a clue how to help in that very particular setting. Nobody does. And, and so we realized that what people were looking for was a recipe or a formula that would address every specific situation, and there's just no way to do that. And what people really needed was wisdom. They needed an overall story about what the goal is for human beings and how does God typically go about trying to achieve those goals. They needed the story, the operating system. Then a second thing happened. You know, a lot's happened in America in the past decade. Uh, While our incomes have gone up, America is increasingly less happy mental illness is skyrocketing, families are falling apart, communities are fragmented, the political process is broken. There's a sense in which the story of the American dream isn't working. Uh, Even though our incomes are going up, we're increasingly less happy. And so America needs a better story. And so what this book is really about is trying to provide a story. What is the goal of life? What does human flourishing look like? And how does God typically go about achieving that goal, then how can that shape both our approaches to the poor and approaches to our own lives? Because both the poor and the rest of us need a different story. That's what this book is about. Your first chapter is called Love Really Does Make the World Go Round. Uh, Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, it really, uh, when we try to figure out what is the story, we've got to start with asking what does human flourishing really look like? What's the goal? What, what, what is the good life? And, and, you know, the story of the American dream is the good life is that we work hard and we earn more money and then we can consume more. And as we consume more, we're going to be happier. And it's sort of this individualistic, self-centered, uh, earn, consume, earn treadmill. And, and the truth of the matter is it's not working. And so we've got to really ask, what does human flourishing look like? And, and, and what we talk about in this book is a biblical notion of what a human being is. It really comes down to what did God create human beings to be? And what the Bible suggests and what theologians have unpacked is the following, that the human being is fundamentally a highly integrated body, and soul. And that that soul is both a mind and affections and and will. And so we're kind of mind, affections, will, body creatures. But then on top of that, we aren't to live in a vacuum. We're created for relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with creation. We're 
We're, we're made in the image of God. God is inherently a loving being. He acts out of love. The creation is an expression of his love. And human beings are wired for love as well. We're wired to love God, self, others, and the rest of creation. So the human being is really this complex mind, affections, will, body, relational creature. And, and human flourishing is to experience these four key relationships in loving community. And so that's what that chapter is trying to get at, is that human flourishing, the good life, what we're all longing for is deep relationship in which our entire being experiences the joy of fellowship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. And, and that's got to shape uh, our lives, and it's got to shape how we work amongst people who are poor. Uh, the second topic, how do human beings and cultures change? Yeah, that's a really important chapter because poverty alleviation is fundamentally about change, right? So that, that woman walks into your church asking for help with her electric bill, right? And, and what's really going on in that moment is we've got to ask ourselves, how can we walk with this woman? so that her life is better, so that she goes from her current situation to a better situation. So poverty alleviation is fundamentally about change. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how do human beings change? How do cultures change? What is the change process? And the Bible actually articulates something about that. Uh, the Bible indicates that fundamentally human beings are transformed into the image of whatever God we're worshiping. And so the human being is fundamentally wired for worship. And, you know, we often say in our churches uh, that the human being is an image bearer. Well, we, we kind of, that rolls off of our tongues. We don't really think about what it means a lot. But to be an image bearer is to be a mirror. Uh, we reflect whatever we're looking at in the way that a mirror does. And so whatever we're worshiping, whatever we're pointed towards, whatever uh, uh, is, is the primary magnet in our lives, that thing that draws us more than anything else, that, that thing that around which our lives are oriented, that's the thing that we are worshiping. We actually, the Bible teaches, we become like that thing. We become like the thing that we are worshiping. And so if you want to know where that woman who's uh, asking for help with her electric bill is heading, she's heading in the direction of whatever she's worshiping. If you want to know what a village in uh, rural Africa is, where, where it's going, it's heading in the direction of whatever it's worshiping. If you want to know where America's going, we're heading in the direction of whatever we're worshiping. And so worship is at the core of poverty alleviation. It's at the core of human change. And and then there's a way that that typically plays itself out. Uh, we are embedded in communities, and a community uh, is oriented around a story that comes from the God it's worshiping, a story of what the good life is. And then we live out practices in that community, practices that, that, that help us to achieve uh, the goal that our God has laid out for us. And those practices become embedded in systems that perpetuate those practices across time. And then all of that shapes us into the image of whatever God we're worshiping. And so there's a process, a, kind of a standard process. And so poverty alleviation it isn't just about drilling wells, as important as that can be, or, or ladling out soup uh, in, a, in a soup kitchen. It's about thinking about what are people worshiping? What is the story of the good life that God gives them? What practices are they engaging in? What systems are being formed out of that? And how are they being shaped as human beings? And so poverty aviation becomes about all of that more than about uh, money or wells or soup. It's about the story. It's about worship. It's about systems. It's about practices. It's a different way of thinking about how to go about helping people who are poor and helping ourselves as well. Uh We've got to take a break here in just a minute, but we've got about a minute, and I want you to talk about topic number three, you can become a consuming robot. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So what, what uh, the, the second section of the book lays out is uh, when false stories make helping hurt. And that particular chapter, you can become a consuming robot, is about the story of the American dream. Uh, I'm an economist, and so I have a Ph.D. in the story of the American dream, and it's basically that the goal of life is greater consumption. 
And the way to achieve that goal is through hard work and economic growth. And and it's a kind of the end game is that you are this individual, self-serving, material robot who consumes all that he or she can. That's the good life. And, and the problem is that we're transformed into that. Uh, Americans are highly individualistic, highly materialistic, highly self-centered people, and it's not conducive to human flourishing. All the evidence from the social sciences suggests that individualistic materialism is not conducive to human flourishing. And so the story of the American dream is the wrong story, and it's killing us. We uh, will be right back with uh, Brian Fickert. Uh, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, this is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. My guest is Dr. Brian Fickert. Uh, we're talking about his book, Becoming Whole. Uh, Brian, uh, talk to us about topic number four. You can be a harp-playing ghost forever. <laughs> You're going to have to explain that one. Yeah, there's another story that's very prominent in, in addition to the story of Western civilization, there's the story of the Western Church. <laughs> and, and that story, I think, comes down to you can be a harp playing ghost forever. You know, I'm a pastor's kid, and, and um, uh, as being a pastor's kid, I was told that I needed to be in church whenever the church doors were open. My mother uh, used to say things to me like, um, by the way, I, I love my parents. They were great parents. But my mother used to say things to me like, you know, don't you want to go to church to set a good example uh, for your peers? And so feeling like the entire uh, spiritual growth of my generation rested on my shoulders, I went to church as often as I could. Every time the church doors were open, I was there. And, and uh, my counselor says that in another 30 years I'm going to overcome all this. But, but um, what, what, what that looks like is whatever is happening in church, I was going to participate in. And uh, one of the things that probably was the lowest rung of the whole experience was uh, having to sing in the junior choir at the age of 12. So you had to stand there uh, wearing this long robe and and looking like a cherub and sing in the uh, junior choir. And the only thing that made it worse was that my older sister uh, was the choir director. And so this was this was uh, virtual torture. But then there was one thing that made it even the worst idea possible, and that's this, that somehow I had absorbed the notion of what we call in our book evangelical Gnosticism. And, and, and in that, that framework, in that worldview, uh, what we're going to do for all eternity is float around uh, like ghosts um, and uh, playing harps and singing in the junior choir forever. And, and to be honest with you, that didn't sound that great to me. Uh, I, I wasn't really enjoying singing in the junior choir I liked um, the things I liked. I liked fishing. I liked, I'm from Wisconsin, I liked the Green Bay Packers, the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, Milwaukee Brewers. Sorry about that, Pat. But I, I, I was a sports <laughs> fan. And so I, I had a life that I enjoyed. And the idea that I was going to somehow become this disembodied ghost who was going to float around for all eternity singing in the junior choir, I didn't want to go to hell, but quite frankly, this only sounded marginally better. And, and what I absorbed is what, again, we call this idea uh, evangelical Gnosticism, which, you know, if you know, the, the Gnostic heresy back in the time of the New Testament said the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good. And I think that the Church in the United States has fallen into that. We, we kind of act as though the material world around us is bad, and what's really good is the spiritual realm, and one day we'll, we'll somehow be zapped into that spiritual realm, and somehow it's supposed to be good, it's supposed to be enjoyable, and quite frankly, it doesn't sound that great to us, because we're whole people. We are uh, spiritual beings, but we're also physical beings, and we enjoy the creation around us. And so the story the Church has outlined, quite frankly, isn't particularly compelling. It doesn't feel good to us, and it shouldn't. It's, it's, it's disembodied, it's, it's inhuman, it's not what human flourishing looks like. And then we take that in our approaches to helping people who are poor. So, so imagine you're a girl who's um, been sold into a brothel, and, and that could be in Africa, it could be in Orlando. And you're 12 years old, and you're being sexually abused around uh, the clock, and the Church comes to you and says, we've got good news for you. Uh, you're a sinner, and you have uh, 
I've sinned against a holy God, and the good news for you is that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins, and one day your soul can go to heaven, and you can float around for all eternity like a ghost. Well, that's not a particularly compelling message to that little girl who's been sold into the brothel. Uh, her primary problem in her mind is not that she's a sinner, uh, which of course she is, but her primary problem is that she's been captured, and that she's been enslaved, and that she's being abused. And, uh, and that's not her fault. Something oppressive is happening to her, and she wants liberation from that. And so when the Church reduces its message to um, Jesus is beaming your soul up out of here, it's not particularly good news for you and me, and it's certainly not very good news for that little girl who's been sold into that brothel. We need a better story. And, 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 and what happens is when our story is only getting your soul beamed up out of here, uh, it doesn't really tell you what to do when the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning. So we go to church on Sunday morning, we're told our souls will go to heaven someday, then we go home, and we get up on Monday morning, the alarm clock goes off, well now what? There's no story in evangelical Gnosticism to describe what's supposed to happen Monday through Saturday. We don't have a story for that. And so what most of us do is we just revert to the American dream. And so we worship God on Sunday morning, and then Monday through Saturday, we live out the American dream, which, quite frankly, isn't working very well. And so we're not particularly happy, and the culture around us isn't particularly happy, because we're all living out the wrong story. We need a better story. Now, uh, Brian, uh, let's talk about escaping flatland. We're now into part three of your book. Yeah. What, what is escaping flatland about? Yeah. So we need a better story. We need a story that's rooted in the only true story, God's story of change. God's story about what the good life is and how that good life can be achieved. And so the first step into that story is what we call escaping flatland. Flatland is a is a um, something from a story, a fable that was written many years ago. And in flatland, there's uh, it's a two-dimensional world. And um, in this two-dimensional world, there are squares, and there are triangles, and there are circles. There's all these shapes that exist in two dimensions, and they can't see the third dimension. All the shapes, the squares, the triangles, uh, the circles, all they can see is two dimensions. And so they can't imagine a third dimension. They can't imagine that there could be spheres, for example, that there could be three-dimensional figures. They only live in two dimensions. And, and it's an image that we're using to get at a problem that we have in Western civilization. We think the world is fundamentally material, that there's no spiritual reality, and if there is a spiritual reality, it's divorced from this world. And as a result, we live in two dimensions. We, we live in a world where um, all that we see, Monday through Saturday anyways, is the material realm. Uh, if there is a God, he seems very detached from everyday life. He doesn't seem relevant. He doesn't seem like uh, he's connected. And so we essentially live our lives in two dimensions. We live our lives in the solely the material realm. I was just in, in uh, West Africa mm. uh, about two weeks ago, and I was out in a very, 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 very remote village in Togo uh, where the Chalmers Center uh, is doing some work. The Chalmers Center equips churches to help people who are very poor. And we were out in this very, very rural village, in a church that, by God's grace, had been planted out of our work. And a woman stood up to give testimony, and she said, uh, uh, up until a year ago, I was a high priest of the snake god. Mm. And the snake god controlled my life. And here's my husband, and look at his arms. His arms were covered with uh, scars uh, from cuts that he had made with broken pieces of glass as part of his uh, demonic rituals. And they said, we've come to Christ. Christ mm. is better than the demons, and our lives have been transformed. Now, in that village, those people are living in three dimensions. They believe the spiritual realm affects every aspect of their lives, and, and, and it does. When you're worshiping demons, your life looks one way. When you're worshiping Jesus Christ, your life looks a different way. And so for them, even their arms, even uh, their physical appearance, is a function of what's happening in the spiritual realm. Well, in the West, we don't live that way. We, we somehow divorced the spiritual realm from the material realm, and that affects 
every aspect of our lives, and it's really messed us up. It messes up our approaches to helping poor people. And so we've got to get out of those two dimensions into a world in which we recognize that God is present. He's, he's transcendent, but he's imminent. He's here. He's effective. He's uh, 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 walking with us every day. It's a different way of living in this world. Dr. Brian Fickert is our guest from Covenant College. Brian, uh, uh, let me just take a quick side road here. Uh, how would you describe Covenant College to one who's never been there? Yeah, Covenant College is a Christian liberal arts college, and so it's not a Bible college in the sense that, that you know, we're, we're just teaching biblical truths. Covenant College is a liberal arts college where students can major in anything, business, art, music, history, uh, and our motto is, in all things Christ preeminent. We believe that the, the, the basic story of Scripture, the story I'm talking about right now on this call, is a story that is all about Jesus Christ. He's the creator, sustainer, and reconciler of all things. All of creation is about Him. And so what we try to do in our various disciplines is to uh, study those disciplines in light of uh, the active presence and work of Jesus Christ in His world. Uh, let's get back to topic six of your book, Becoming Whole, Reconsidering Creation, the Key to Understanding Human Flourishing. Yeah. You know, it's we, we to understand human flourishing, we've got to go back to how did God make his world? And, you know, so many of us have, uh, when we think of the Garden of Eden, we think of Genesis chapter one, we, we've seen pictures perhaps in our Sunday school uh, lessons of Adam and Eve standing there naked and usually behind bushes, and, and that's our, our image of the Garden of Eden. But you know, there, there's something really missing from that picture. The thing that's missing is the most important thing. Uh, the Garden of Eden was the place where God dwelt. He was His presence was uh, 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 most keenly felt there. Theologians have uh, recently been uncovering uh, that throughout the scriptures, the imagery of the Garden of Eden is actually that it was a temple. A temple is a place where God dwells, where his reign is most keenly felt. The temple is a place where God and human beings connect, where they dwell together, where, where heaven and earth meet. And the Garden of Eden was actually that. It was a temple. It was the place where God dwelt with human beings. And that's the key to human flourishing. I mentioned earlier that human beings are... Uh, highly integrated body-soul relational creatures, and, and the most important relationship is our relationship with God. We are wired for intimacy with God. Uh, one theologian has said to be human is to be in communion with God, and so the key to human flourishing starts with living in God's presence, dwelling with Him. And then Adam and Eve actually were given a uh, task uh, the scriptures suggest they were um, given the task of being priests and kings. As priests, Adam and Eve were to lead all of creation into worship of God Almighty, extending uh, the reign and presence of God from that garden temple out to spread across the earth. And as kings, they were to rule over that expanding uh, presence of God. And so as priests, kings, they are worker worshipers who extend the reign and presence of God from the Garden Temple throughout the earth. That's what human flourishing looks like, is to dwell in God's presence, and then to live out of that presence as priest-kings who spread the worship and reign of God Almighty throughout the earth. That's the goal. That's the goal for you and me. It's the goal for the Orlando Magic players, and it's the goal for that woman who walks into your church asking for help with her electric bill. That's what human flourishing looks like. Brian, tell us about reconsidering the fall more than just a legal problem. Yeah, you know, what many of us were taught in the church is this, that, that um, uh, we have sinned against a holy and righteous God, and that we um, have this legal problem. And so many of us have an image of a great big courthouse in the sky in which there's a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper is my name, and it says, Guilty. Brian Fickers, guilty of sin. And the Bible certainly teaches that. Uh, the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin are death. And so, so we do have a legal problem before a holy God. And then what we've told ourselves is that Jesus Christ comes and pays the penalty for that sin on the cross, that Jesus solves our legal problem. And that's all true. 
That's all true, and praise God it's true, because I'm a sinner on the need of uh, Christ's uh, saving death and resurrection. It's all true. But boy, I've got a lot more than a legal problem. Adam and Eve go back to the garden. They were wired, physically, psychologically wired, to dwell in the presence of God Almighty. And so when they're cast out of the garden, it's like ripping out their kidneys and then saying, go function. You're ripping out of the human being uh, the centerpiece of what human flourishing looks like. And so being cast out of the Garden of Eden is not just a, um, a change of address for Adam and Eve. It's a complete destruction of their personhood. I want you to talk about, well, guess what, Brian? We've run out of time. Uh, we've got to take a break. Uh, it's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, thanks to Brian Fickert. We, we got more after this. Well, our guest in that first segment was Dr. Brian Fickert from Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. We head out to the Missouri Ozarks, and we've caught up with Derek Gilbert, host of Skywatch TV. His new book is out, Bad Moon Rising, Islam, Armageddon. And the most diabolical double cross in history. Derek, welcome. How you doing? I'm doing well, Pat. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, best-selling author of The Great Inception. Uh, how did this book come about? I started thinking about the, the role that Islam might play in the end times. Um, there's a Pew Research Group survey that shows that uh, at its current rate of growth, Islam is on track to become the world's largest religion within the next 50 years. Uh I mean, if the Lord tarries, uh, there will be more Muslims and Christians on planet Earth by the year 2070 or thereabouts. So any end times theories or, or, uh, say, systems of uh, timelines, shall we say, of the end times that don't account for for, uh, Islam, uh, missing a very big piece of the puzzle. So... Uh, that was that was part one of this. Part two was thinking back to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 6, where he writes that uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, uh, and, and so on, you know, the cosmic rulers over this present darkness. In other words, evil intelligences, fallen angels and demons who um, have rebelled against their creator and who want to uh, try to destroy, dismantle his creation. Um, what role did they play? in the establishment of Islam. So that uh, was led me down this, this path of research. For the last several years, I've been doing a lot of study on the religions of ancient Mesopotamia um, and how they are reflected in the Bible, the writings of the, the prophets and the apostles. When Muhammad established Islam in the early 7th century, what he essentially did was freeze Arab culture, tribal culture, in place by making tribal warfare uh, a, a holy calling. And that culture was essentially unchanged, had been unchanged, more or less since the days of Abraham. It was the Amorite culture, of pastoral, nomadic, um, warlike, tribal in nature. Um, it, it really had been the same in, in that part of the world for almost 2,700 years by the days of Muhammad. And so then the question became, if the principalities and powers of the Amorites of of, uh, Abraham's day guided their actions, then who were those those entities that the ancient Amorites worshipped, and can we find their characteristics in the gods worshipped by the Arabs just prior to Muhammad? So that was the uh, the genesis of the book, Bad Moon Rising. Derek Gilbert is our guest. Uh, why is Islam the supernatural equivalent of a corporate merger, Derek? My belief is that Islam is too big and too successful. Uh, again, after 1,400 years, it's on the verge of overtaking Christianity as the largest religion on earth. Um, that to lay the blame for Islam at just one entity, Satan or the moon god, I, I think is oversimplifying it. Uh, we know from the book of Revelation that Satan, when he was cast down from heaven, his, uh, the tail of the dragon swept down a third of the stars with him, so there are many other angels who rebelled against him. And we see this reflected in the Old Testament, where God calls these gods of the nations gods. 
I mean, we as Christians have been trained to believe that there is one God, and yes, that's true. There is one capital G God, Yahweh, of the Bible. But there are other gods, small g gods, created beings, who God allotted to the nations. Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 and 20. Um, But God told the uh, Israelites through Moses, you don't worship them. The sun, the moon, the host of heaven, those have been allotted to the nations, but you are mine, Israel. And then we as Christians grafted into Israel uh, belong to him as well. Um, My thesis is that these entities, caught off guard by the resurrection of Jesus, decided they had to band together. Uh, What was the saying with uh, Benjamin Franklin in the the revolution? If we don't hang together, we shall surely all hang separately. I think that's what's motivated these entities. Satan is part of this coalition, but there are others with him. And I identify the seven that I think are most likely behind Islam, seven of the the principal gods, the most powerful entities uh, worshipped by the ancient Amorites and the pagan nations around ancient Israel. Uh, Derek, uh, how is the iniquity of the Amorites affecting the world today, do you think? Well, I think that's the, um, it's in the form of Islam. I mean, the iniquity of the Amorites is kind of a cryptic statement that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 when he established this covenant. Uh, He said that uh, your descendants will sojourn in a land that is not theirs, but they'll return in the fourth generation for the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. But most of us today don't realize that the Amorites of the ancient world essentially controlled the world of the, uh, the patriarchs from about 2000 B.C. until about the time of the Exodus, around 1400, 1450 B.C. Uh, the Amorites controlled everything that today is Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, even northern Egypt. When the Israelites were in Egypt, it was under the control of these Semitic-speaking cousins, basically, the Amorites. Uh, I think that their gods, their worship, their pagan practices are manifest in the characteristics of Islam today. So we can say that, yes, the Israelites returned um, in the days of Moses and returned to uh, Canaan, con- took the land as uh, mostly as uh, commanded by God. But uh, I think the sin of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorites, that pagan worship that surrounded ancient Israel and drew ancient Israel into sin, uh, I think that. Uh, that pagan worship is still with us today in the form of Islam. Uh, Derek, what can you tell us about the importance of the moon god then and now? The moon god was very important to the ancient Amorites. Um, we need to establish that the Amorites, again, uh, the, it, I cannot emphasize enough how important they were to the culture of the ancient Near East. Amorites founded Babylon. We think of Babylonians and uh, you know Nebuchadnezzar and uh, yeah, but that was uh, that was like 1,300 years after Babylon was founded. Babylon was founded by an Amorite dynasty, and even though the city god of of uh, Babylon, Marduk, was elevated to the top of the Mesopotamian pantheon, he became king of the gods of Mesopotamia because Babylon became a political powerhouse under Hammurabi the Great. Um, the god worshipped by that dynasty, including Hammurabi the Great, the god that they personally considered the most important, was the moon god called Sin, spelled S-I-N. And that is interesting because we see some very early confrontations in the Old Testament between Israel and Yahweh, the god of the Bible, and this moon god. We're told in the book of Exodus that the Israelites entered the, uh, the wilderness of Sin, on the 15th day of the second month. That date is significant because in a 30-day lunar calendar, the 15th day is a night when the moon is absolutely full. The moon god is at full strength, and the Israelites, Exodus tells us, began to complain on that very day. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die! But then the next morning, manna began to fall, and it fell six days a week for 40 years until they crossed the Jordan River. And interestingly, the very first target when they entered the land of Canaan was the city of Jericho, which was named for the Amorite name of the moon god, Yarik. When you transliterate from Semitic to English, the Y becomes a J, Yarik, Jericho. That was the first target in the new land. The moon god established the dynasty of Babylon, the occult system of Babylon, and that is the symbol of the end times church of the Antichrist used by John in the book of Revelation. And that is not a coincidence. 
Uh, Derek Gilbert is the author of Bad Moon Rising, and uh, we're talking with him about this book and other issues here. Derek, explain how Islam's history reflects the characteristics of the gods of Mesopotamia. The chief god or the creator god, according to the Amorites or the Canaanites, if you will, who surrounded the ancient Israelites was called El. El was believed to live on uh, Mount Hermon, which is the mountain that uh, right now is the border between Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. Um, He had some very strong connections to the underworld. The territory just below Mount Hermon was the ancient uh, kingdom of Og of Bashan. Og was the last of the remnant of the Rephaim. According to Canaanite religious texts, that was literally believed to be the entrance to the underworld. Uh, El is equated in other ancient texts with gods with an even stronger underworld connection, like Dagon uh, of the Philistines. Dagon, in some places, was called Lord of the Corpse. Uh, He's also equated with the Greek god Kronos, king of the Titans, the one who killed his children by eating them to prevent from being overthrown. Of course, according to Greek mythology, that uh, eventually happened anyway. And he was banished to the abyss. Interestingly, the Bible also tells us of a group of angels who sinned, who were banished to the abyss. 2 Peter 2.4 talks about those angels who were thrust down to hell, but the Greek word behind it is tartarau, which means thrust down to Tartarus. Uh, This connection with death, this connection with the underworld, uh, if we've learned nothing from 14 centuries of uh, contact with the Islamic world, is that they they have no problems dealing in death. Uh, Their expansion has been by conquest. The conquered peoples are forced to convert or become enslaved or die. Uh, And I think that is one of the aspects of Islam that uh, is clearly evident in the 1,400 years that uh, we've been interacting with them. Um, One of the other main gods, of course, is uh, Satan, uh, Baal, the storm god. Jesus identified Baal as Satan. Uh, he's the one in Isaiah chapter 14 wants to establish his mount of assembly above that of the stars of God to be like God, uh, ascendant. Uh, that is the goal of Islam, and certainly that is reflected in the uh, characteristics that we read in the Bible of Satan, of Baal, um, the moon god, the occult worship of Babylon, the sun god in the ancient world was uh, the lawgiver. Uh, Islam is nothing if not legalistic. Uh, they have uh, come up with many ways of... Uh, Following Sharia law, but at the same time being able to do things that we as Christians would, would consider, well, that God in the Bible uh, says flat out are uh, immoral and, and wrong. Um, Ishtar, uh, ancient Astarte in the Bible, uh, the, the goddess of sex, but not, not husband and wife marital relations, but deviant, carnal, gender fluid uh, sex, uh, carnality. Uh, is is evident, in, and I go into some detail on that in the book. I won't do that here on the air, but uh, uh, again, that is a, a strand of, of history that most Muslims would like to forget, but it's there when you read the, uh, the historical evidence. Uh, and then the gods of war. Um, Chemosh of ancient Moab was later worshipped by the Greeks as Ares, by the Romans as Mars. Again, 1,400 years of violent conflict with Islam uh, should teach us something about uh, the, the, the influence of that particular entity. So when you look at the the historical teachings and the interaction between Islam and the West, uh, I think you see characteristics of all of these uh, deities worshipped by the ancient Amorites, the neighbors of ancient Israel. Derek, what can you tell us about the shocking links between Mount Hermon, Petra, and Mecca? This is really curious. This takes a little time to unpack, but uh, Mount Hermon, again, was the uh, place where the Amorites believed their creator god, El, lived with his 70 sons. On the summit of Mount Hermon is an ancient temple. Uh, the explorer Sir Charles Warren in 1869 found this temple, and inside the temple he found a stela about four feet high, 18 inches wide, inscribed in Greek, by the order of the Most High and Holy God, and they're not talking about God of the Bible here, they're talking about El of the Canaanites, this entity with this underworld connection. Uh, those who swore an oath proceed from here. That's a reference to the Watchers. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in that uh, very cryptic 
section there that talks about the sons of God who saw that the daughters of man were fair and took wives of all they chose, etc., etc. Uh, leading up to the summit of Mount Hermon, however, one also found a low stone wall uh, that forced worshipers who were climbing to the summit to pour out drink offerings to these gods, small g gods, to approach the summit in a circular fashion with the summit always on the left. In other words, they had to approach by circling the summit counterclockwise. Now, Warren said, you know, this is very similar to the Tawaf, the practice of circling the Kaaba in Mecca. And according to legends of the Muslims, uh, they believe that when Adam, because, you know, Adam built the Kaaba, according to Muslims, uh, built the Kaaba, he incorporated stones from five sacred mountains, Mount Carmel, the Mount of Olives, Mount Ararat, uh, Jebel al-Nur, which is where Muhammad received his uh, revelation, and then Mount Hermon. So Warren concluded, why would they mention that in the myth if there wasn't some connection between the worship at the Kaaba and what was practiced here in ancient times on Mount Hermon? My guest is Derek Gilbert. Uh, We've got to take a break here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. More with Derek Gilbert right after this. Derek Gilbert is a popular conference speaker. He's been a professional broadcaster for nearly four decades. In addition, he's a lifelong fan of the Chicago Cubs, prefers glasses to contacts, and he's been known to sing the high part in barbershop and gospel quartets. Is all that true, uh, Derek? Uh, Yes, it is. I'm just thankful I've lived long enough to see the Cubs win a World Series. But I hope you live long enough so that I can hear you sing the high part in gospel <laughs> quartets. Boy, that's 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 my goal here. See? Well, there's there's nothing as beautiful to my ears as as uh, vocal harmony. So gospel quartet, barbershop quartet, uh, even doo wop, and, uh, uh, and yeah, will uh, will get me uh, get me going. Bad Moon Rising is the name of the book. Derek Gilbert is the author. Uh, Derek, I want you to get into this topic. The prophesied death of the gods at Armageddon. Yeah, this is uh, something that um, jumps out when you you begin to realize that uh, the the prophets of old, first of all, knew what their pagan neighbors believed. Um, There was a lot of cultural interaction between uh, Israel and, uh, and Egypt, between Israel and the Canaanites, the Amorites who lived near them. They understood what their neighbors believed. And they wrote about that. There, were, there are messages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that only make sense if you understand what the, uh, the neighbors of ancient Israel believe. One of the things that, that is, is astonishing is understanding that uh, as more texts have been discovered and translated by scholars over the last half century, uh, that the, the prophets of old were responding in, in many ways, and sometimes led by the Holy Spirit to prophesy against these these entities. In Isaiah 14, which is the famous chapter, you know, how thou art fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning, uh, wants to establish his mount of assembly above the, the stars of God. The mount of assembly is a key phrase because the Hebrew there is har moed. Uh, a scholar in 1938 by name of Charles Torrey pointed out that we've been misled into believing that the final battle of the ages, Armageddon, will be fought at Megiddo, and it's because of difficulty in transliterating from Hebrew to Greek to Hebrew to English. Uh, And somewhere in the translation, we added a G that's not there in Hebrew. There's a character called Ayin, for which there's no corresponding sound in English or Greek. The actual word or phrase that John was transmitting in the book of Revelation is not Har Megiddo, because there's no mountain at Megiddo. It was Har Moed, Mount of Assembly, which is Zion. It's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So that's where the battle will be fought. When you read further down in Isaiah 14, you see a phrase, verses 20 and 21, that describe uh, slaughter for his sons, uh, for the evil that he's done. Uh, let me see if I can bring this up here quickly so I'm not trying to uh, remember verses out of memory, which is always dangerous. Um, prepare slaughter for his sons. They're talking about this rebel from Eden, in other words, Lucifer, Satan. Uh, because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Cities, in Hebrew, the word is 
Irim, or Irim. Uh, but that's the same exact word in Aramaic, in Aramaic, a very closely related language that means watchers. Well, who were the watchers? The watchers, they're mentioned once in Daniel chapter 4. They are angels. These are rebellious angels, the angels referred to in Genesis chapter 6. We know this from the extra-biblical book of Enoch. But the point is, in this context of prophesying doom for, the, uh, for his sons, the seed of Satan, if you will, uh, is that it makes more sense to read this as fill the face of the world with watchers, with like-minded, rebellious, angelic beings. We also see this in the prophecy of Balaam. He was the prophet for prophet who tried to curse Israel, was hired to curse Israel, but God wouldn't let him do it. In Numbers 24, beginning at verse 17, we read that uh, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Well, that is a messianic prophecy. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, break down all the sons of Sheth. Um, When you skip down to verse 19, one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Again, I argue in this book that the word more probably means watchers rather than cities. That, in other words, the death of the gods decreed in Psalm 82, which is a courtroom scene where God takes his place in the midst of the divine council, in the midst of the gods, he passes judgment. These are these rebellious angels that God had basically delegated as his uh, subordinates to shepherd mankind, and they didn't rule justly. Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And when you skip down to verse 6, this is the sentence. I said, this is God talking, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And there are other verses that I reference in Bad Moon Rising, uh, the book of Isaiah in particular, that talk about the, uh, the sun and moon being uh, basically shut up in, in, in a prison and, and confounded. Um, these are entities, these fallen angels who presented themselves to the pagans of the ancient world as their gods. God, our God, the God of the Bible, has decreed that on that day, the day of the Lord, Armageddon, they will fall. <laughs> they, will fall they will die like men and fall like any prince, according to Psalm 82. The death of the gods has been decreed. We are just now waiting for sentence to be carried out. Derek, tell us about Islam's tragic role in the end times. From the standpoint of the fallen, or the infernal council, if you will, the only role Islam has to play, the only usefulness I think they have to serve, besides sowing death, bloodshed, and, and hatred, which the religion, that religion has been doing for the last 14 centuries, <coughs> in my view, is to lure Jews and Christians, if we're still here on the earth when the Antichrist uh, comes to power, uh, into welcoming the Antichrist with open arms. Um, I think Joel Richardson, in his recent book, Mystery Babylon, was correct in arguing that Babylon, Mystery Babylon, is uh, Islam, that uh, Mecca will be this this false end times religion. And again, it connects to Babylon through the uh, iniquity of the Amorites. And I show in the, in, in the book, Bad Moon Rising, the connection between um, Ezekiel's lament over the city of Tyre and how that connects to John's lament over Babylon when it falls. So if Islam is this end times religion, Mystery Babylon, why would it be destroyed by the Antichrist and the kings of the earth in uh, Revelation uh, 18. Why, why would they do that? Why would they turn on the, uh, the scarlet woman? I believe that it would be used as a deception, that Israel will fight a war against its Muslim neighbors, it will win, and uh, the, the Muslims then will be sacrificed by these fallen angels behind their religion uh, in order to set up the Antichrist and establish him as Israel's false savior. If Israel wins a miraculous war against Islam, and it would have to be because there are 14.5 million Jews on earth and nearly 1.7 billion Muslims, mm. um, the Savior of Israel would be welcomed as the Messiah. And I think that's the uh, tragic role that uh, Islam has to play, that the God, gods that they serve will throw them away to try to destroy God's chosen people, Israel. Derek, what do you want people to take from uh, this conversation we've had? First of all, that the supernatural realm is a lot more 
active and complex than most of us have been taught. Um, but that God's promises are sure, that uh, there is a day coming when justice will be restored to this earth, and that these entities, Satan and his colleagues, who have deceived the world since the beginning, will be brought to justice. Their deaths have been decreed, and uh, our mission in the meanwhile is to hold our ground, to make disciples as uh, you know, while we still have time. And I want to just be clear that I did not write this book to bash Muslims for Islam, because the tragic thing in all of this is that they too are deceived. They don't recognize that they're in bondage. And sadly, um, if we forget that they are essentially human shields in this supernatural war, um, we're not likely to save very many. I know that witnessing the Muslims is a difficult thing, and God bless those who are, have the courage and the calling to do it. Uh, we need to pray for those people and support those missionaries in their mission to try to bring those people behind our lines and get them off the battlefield and just wait for that day when uh, our Savior comes riding over the hill with the, uh, the heavenly host. Derek Gilbert has been our guest, Bad Moon Rising, the name of his book. We've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. I'm so glad you could join us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In the first segment, Dr. Brian Fickert was with us uh, from uh, Covenant College in Tennessee uh, talking about his book, Becoming Whole. And then uh, Derek Gilbert plugged in with us. And we got to talk about Bad Moon Rising. Very, very interesting discussion uh, with Derek Gilbert. Uh, I'd like to encourage you to uh, check out my latest book. It's just coming out now. It's called Lead Like Walt. Uh, in this book, uh, we are looking at Walt Disney as a leader. And, and what were the qualities he had that made him such an excellent leader? Um, uh, go up to Amazon, uh, always a wonderful way to order books, and you can get a head start on ordering Lead Like Walt. HCI is the publisher, and uh, sure hope you enjoy it. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5 The Word in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.